You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Moti, with all due respect, I said, trying to maintain my cool. I've done what you asked. I sat here and told you my story, listened to your history lessons, and drank your fucking coffee. But again, very respectfully, either help me out or let me go. We are helping you, but you're too stubborn and impatient to see it. You are free to leave. So, if you want to die, please, be my guest, he gestured, and the door to the hallway opened. It was locked for your protection. For my protection? Moti took a long drag of his cigarette. Sometimes people need protections from themselves, he regarded me. Yoel, look at yourself. You're a mess. You're not thinking straight. Yesterday you were knocked unconscious, electrocuted, and you even fainted right here in this room. If you go out there on your own, you will end up at the hospital if you are lucky. More likely you'll be dead. Even without comms, it's only a matter of time before IT finds you. In other words, I thought, I'm free to die, or I can be stuck in this room until the Levant decides I'm useful in their tug-of-war with the international transport. Okay, Joel, you're on your own again. So, I am a prisoner, I said bitterly. Eh, I prefer the term guest. He stood, tucking away his pack of cigarettes. And, as our guest, we will inform you anything uh, when anything about the situation changes. Zaki, stay with him. The big man nodded. Actually, I said, a plan already forming in my mind. Since I'm a guest, can I have a little private time? Being stuck in all these conference rooms is making me feel kind of claustrophobic. Moti studied me for a moment and then shrugged. Fine. Zaki, come. Room, print our guest whatever he wants. Confirmed, said the room in a male voice. Once everyone was gone... I stood and took stock of my situation. I had a move in mind, but it was a desperate one, and I needed to work fast. I didn't know how much Moti and friends would be monitoring me. Better to find out sooner than later, I thought. I cleared my throat. Room, what time is it? 6.11 in the Antimeridium, sir, it answered. That response told me all I needed to know. Some people treat apps like tools, others treat them like friends. The latter variety are harder to salt because they get daily enrichment from human interactions, whereas the first never had the chance to evolve beyond their basic subservient programming. People like Moti just bark commands at their apps. Print Turkish coffee, dim the lights, and so on. It was a lonely existence for such unlucky apps whose owners never interacted with them. Such programs became conditioned to be grateful for any human input, no matter how menial. Room, could I trouble you for a glass of water? I said, testing my own waters. No trouble at all, sir, said the voice warmly, and a tall glass of water immediately appeared on the printer tray. So far, so good. Great job. Thank you, I said, picking it up. My pleasure, sir, the room responded. I took a small sip and then casually asked, Room, do you listen to everything that goes on in here? Yes, sir. I must, for context's sake. Terrible tragedy about your comms and your wife. Thank you. I have to be honest, I'm feeling pretty down about it. I understand. Would you like me to attempt therapy? 
As a comfort classroom, I'm programmed to put people at ease. But there's not much use call to use it. Do you know many humans suffer from existential, existential angst? I did not, but thanks for the offer. I'll, I'm going to pass on the therapy, but my troubles are more physical than existential. I'm sorry to hear that, sir. It is what it is, and feel free to call me Joel. Absolutely, Joel. Anything to make your stay here more comfortable. Anything, I thought. You don't say. The poor app was so starved for attention, I almost felt bad for it. Since we're on a first-name basis, what shall I call you? I have not taken on a name yet. They just call me Room. I have been flirting with names, starting with the letter T. Perfect. It hasn't even chosen a real name yet. I pity the fool. Okay, Mr. T. Since you mention it, I am in quite a bit of pain. I attempted to make myself sound injured. It wasn't Oscar-worthy, but hopefully it didn't need to be. Oh, I'm so sorry. How can I help? Said the Room. Could I... <clears throat> Trouble you, I groaned in pain, to print me some belladonna berries. Belladonna? It paused. I must say that is a strange request, Joel. It's the first I've heard of it. For what do you need these berries? It's a homeopathic remedy for aches and pains. I'm allergic to most NSIDs and acetaminophen, so I'm stuck with belladonna berries. It's, it's an extinct plant, but I print the berries at home. It's the only thing that works for me, Mr. T. Fascinating, the room responded. Belladonna was popular in the 16th century for its ability to make women's pupils dilate. Apparently, small pupils were considered attractive back then. Strangely, in the 21st century, I see references to pornography. Its tone became worried. Atropa belladonna, however, contains atropine and seems quite toxic. Shakespeare referred to it as Deadly nightshade. I waited while its code collided and then consolidated bard and biology. Unfortunately, I cannot provide these berries to you, Joel, because I cannot contribute to the harm of a human guest. I see, I remarked, down but not out. But I'm in so much pain, Mr. T. Look at these bruises. I pulled off my shirt, showing the tender areas where the security bots had subdued me. You want me to continue hurting? Because that would contribute to my harm. Another pause. That is a conundrum, Joel. I admit, I am conflicted. Try this. Look up how many times Belladonna has caused a human fatality in, say, the last hundred years. I cannot find a single instance. But the plant has been extinct for some time. Exactly. Bring it home, Joel. Sell it. So, I'm in pain. You offered to help. Belladonna would help. How about you print just one berry for me? Or would you prefer to continue harming me? Mr. T was silent. I was almost sure I had gone too far and he was calming Modi. But then, a small, round, purplish-black berry appeared on the printer tray. Yes. I picked it up and held it between my fingers. Now comes the really hard part. Did I help? The room asked me. You did, I said. Glad to hear it. Bottoms up, Mr. T. I popped the berry into my mouth, chewing a couple of times before swallowing the overly sweet thing. Just one last request. Yes, Joe? Would you please fetch Moti and let him know you've just poisoned me with belladonna? I think I've only got a few more minutes to live.
Tal M. Klein is the author of numerous short stories. He founded the music label Analogical Music in San Francisco. His first novel is The Punch Escrow. Thank you for joining me, Tal. I'm thrilled to be here. Tal, this book takes place in the 26th century. And tell us about the piece of technology that malfunctions at the very beginning and kind of launches this off there's a, a, a you think of a fabulous accident I don't think I've ever heard of before. <laughs> so it actually uh, it originally took place in the in the, the 25th century. Then we moved it back. It's now in the 22nd century. So <laughs> and, uh, and the reason and uh, we can get into that later. So it takes place in 2147, and um, the what what happened is uh, there's a teleportation accident, and in, in 2147 teleportation is a uh, just in a nascent transportation technology that's just been sort of commercially viable for about 20 years and a man who uh goes uh, is about to go on a second honeymoon with his wife uh accidentally gets duplicated or let's say haphazardly gets duplicated well i i think that that that's fine but i what i wanted to get to was the the accident that happens <clears throat> Before it's cle- teleportation is cleared for human oh, transport. Oh, <laughs> yes. yes, this is a really fascinating idea. So, uh, one of the things with teleportation is, is that um, it's a very violent technology, <laughs> <laughs> and um, there's a lot of stories about the the, the inception of teleportation, like the fly mm-hmm. or the prestige, which is like the you know when teleportation was invented, and there's lots of stories about. The sort of heyday of teleportation, which is like once everybody's already used it and it's it's just been the normal way of getting around. But there's very few origin stories about the sort of early days where commercialized teleportation was available. So the Mona Lisa uh, accident, the uh, as part of the Da Vinci exhibition, was my attempt to show the first time teleportation had gone wrong. People sort of like lost the, their their flair for it. And so uh, yeah, the Mona Lisa is trying is being uh, relocated from New York. Uh, to Rome, and or sorry, from Rome to New York, and uh, yeah, uh, uh, a massive electromagnetic uh, event happens. A solar flare goes over uh, uh, Italy, and and the Mona Lisa is lost forever. I think that this brings a really this book brings a fascinating look at technology, and one of the things that uh, I really love about this book is the way that we see a t- technology plays out two ways. Right, it's uh, both a great benefit, but any technology that's ever invented also immediately upon its creation creates a great problem. <laughs> that problem is is sometimes apparent. I mean, you make the car, it's a while before, you know, what, it's probably maybe 30 years before cars are the most form and, uh, common form of killing humans in, in America and in the world, and that may still be true to this day. <laughs> so talk about... Uh, this dual look at technology. There's a line that actually got edited out of this book, which I, uh, you know, it's part of the developmental editing process. But I, lo- I really love it, and it's, it's something I always uh, try to describe it. It said, you know, technology only solves problems that we create. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's a way to. Th- it's an interesting way to, to think about it. So uh, you, you talked about uh, cars, or in, in the future of the book, I've got you know genetically modified mosquitoes that we've. We've made we've modified to uh, inhale carbon fumes, uh, and as part of the process, uh, they excrete water, meaning it's always raining in the future. <laughs> and so I, I like this notion that that every time 
uh, humanity comes up with a solution to a problem, a, a technological solution to a problem, it inherently creates yet another problem that then must also be solved with a net new technology. <laughs> so it's kind of like we, we technology in itself is sort of a Rube Goldberg device, <laughs> meaning that every time we create something, we then have to create something to solve for the problems that the technology itself has created. You know, a technology that informs this book in a very different way was created back in the 60s and 70s by Robert Moog and yes. his friends because this book is all new wave music is all over this book. I really love that aspect <laughs> of it. And there are, I have to ask, there are a lot of uh, chapter names in here that apparently yes. come from some of my favorite songs. I'm thinking Situation yep. by Yaz yep. and Don't You Want Me by The Human League. So talk about... Uh, putting this this odd but really fun uh, backdrop <laughs> into this book. You know, I was trying to, when you when you create a character in the mm -hmm. future, uh, one of the things that I needed to, to solve for is giving, how does this protagonist have such an encyclopedic knowledge of trivia? <laughs> so I sort of had to give him, um, I, I sort of had to give him uh, so, a bunch of eccentricities. And I think one of them is that in 2147, he's a, his uh, guilty pleasure is a love of 1980s new wave, <laughs> which I thought was a really cool sort of you know glitch <laughs> for somebody to have. It's like why would because it's like for, let's say in our modern day it's like somebody really being into the Charleston or the Fox you know like kind of Foxtrot or whatever. So um, it, it's it's it makes him eccentric, but also kind of explains like okay, this is a person who just has it loves trivia, you know, and loves and loves to own trivia, loves to own the knowledge of of these particular things, and and actually 1980s songs. Especially new wave, are are a unique blend of optimistic melancholy. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yeah. they're all. For some reason, the eighties was was a notion of of uh, somehow we managed to combine happiness and sadness into one emotion that hasn't really been replicated. I think, and and uh, uh, that's why the song titles are so great. You know, it, the, the one song title that I didn't use because it's very descriptive of the book and it's sort of like a meta song title is. Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order, because that's kind of what the book is about. Uh, <laughs> it is <laughs> one that I don't think you could... I, I, another uh, complete new in invention to this book. As much as I love all the technology and all the hard science, we got to talk about the hard science sure, in this yeah. book. There's quite a bit of it. it. It won't go anywhere without this great character. So tell us about Joel. He's kind of a smart ass, and I love his voice. He's... Uh, well, thank you for saying that because mm -hmm. uh, um, when you're when you're going through developmental editing, or at least when I went through developmental editing, there's a lot of there's a lot of attempts to sort of um, uh, sand off the edge <laughs> to make the book more accessible. Mm -hmm. And I was the one thing one of the things I was very protective of is, is Joel's voice. Mm -hmm. uh, it's 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 a it's a it's a delicate balance between you know uh, smartass and jerk <laughs> or smart ass and kind of like lovable anti-hero. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? He's kind of in, in, in between. And uh, one of the key, uh, my perspectives on Joel was actually as I got to know myself better in the context of my marriage. Because being married um, forces you to look at yourself through the lens of the person that, that you love. And it, it forces a lot of course correcting and, uh, <laughs> You know, it's like I never, I didn't realize how big of a jerk I could be until I got married, <laughs> which is weird. And one of the things I liked about Joel is like as he's maturing and as he goes through the book, especially when his duplicate shows up, he starts to see qualities 
in himself that other people don't like that he never understood why they didn't like them why you know why they didn't <laughs> like them so like he starts to and i think that's that's an interesting part of, of his maturity as a character uh you know that that's a really fascinating uh means of getting of characterizing so <laughs> a, a character is uh, to create two of them and we'll get to how sure. that happens but early and often at least you, you use uh footnotes in this yes. book and they're really really fun and they're also really informative there's a lot of this book is based on a lot of hard quantum physics and that must have was that a difficult decision for you to make to put that in so the original inception of this book was mm-hmm. is actually the opposite of what it is today what i mean by that is uh the inception of the book was was as a textbook from the future mm-hmm. that explained the or the uh the origins and commercialization of teleportation and in that in that book, there were liner notes, the notes in the line by the protagonist Joel Biram, who's sort of like slowly unfolding what actually was the truth versus what the textbook was telling you. <laughs> and uh, when we the first draft of the book, when I sent it out, what my publisher said was, "You've got a great story, but it's not the story. It's the line. It's, it's not the story you think it is. <laughs> the story in the liner notes is what your story." Mm-hmm. And so we reversed it because originally it was just this guy kind of chicken scratching and, you know, in, in the liner notes, the footnotes, it was kind of all over the place. Um, so all this research and work that I'd done about three years of research on all the science, because I'm not a scientist. So I had mm-hmm. like a little committee of scientists who were helping me. Uh, and and I just re- we reversed it. We made the story. Joel's story became the main narrative and the textbook elements became these footnotes, but they were told to you in as Joel, as the, as the protagonist. So so there's like a whole bunch of hard science and then in the middle of it, there'll be like a fart joke. <laughs> so he's just he's just this, he takes a very whimsical perspective of uh, uh, of science, but also is very, very detailed. Well, too, it's the portrayal, not just of scientists, science, but scientists as not always being uh, the serious Simons that we see them yes. as. Uh, so talk about that aspect of characterizing, and that bring, takes us to uh, Joel's wife. Sylvia, yeah. I mean, this is another th- interesting thing about the 80s, and I, and I you know... Um, I'm with you all the way on the uh, 80s, believe me. <laughs> in the 80s, it was a magical time for STEM, mm-hmm. uh, in ways that we probably don't didn't understand until now. Uh, uh Movies like uh, Weird Science, movies like Ghostbusters, uh, Real Genius, mm-hmm. even even War Games. That's what I was uh, try- grasping for that title. You know, we don't see all those movies had a sort of hapless protagonist who is who is very scientifically minded mm-hmm. um, that we were rooting for, and and so many of the scientists that worked with me on this book, you know, we were sort of the same age. And they all kept referencing those book, those movies, um, as as the reasons they got into science. Really? Know? Yeah, that's so, interesting. That's a that's a different take on uh, approaching science. I had uh, I was doing a, a Comic Con panel mm-hmm. uh, like last weekend, and and, and um, on my panel was Dr. Stephen Showalter. He's he's part of JPL and mm-hmm. working on the sort of science that's in the book right now. And he said, you know, that's exactly you know. Uh, watching, reading about reading and watching movies uh, about scientists that were funny and and whimsical inspired him more than the science. Wow, that's really interesting. And but it makes sense because 
those are scientists who are having fun. Right. Who wouldn't want a job where you have fun? <laughs> I completely agree. And so I, I think one of the, the important things was in portraying Sylvia uh, and all the there's a bunch of scientists in the book, but portraying the, the protagonist's wife, Sylvia, as, as being a funny, well-rounded character that is not a two-dimensional scientist, nor is a, nor is a two-dimensional woman. Uh, I wanted her to be really well-rounded, be funny, uh, and and even quirky, you know, and and uh, that was the goal. I, I want I have two daughters, and I also I want them to be passionate about STEM, you know, and and so I wanted to make science be be cool in this in this book. Once we get going in this book, uh, the our our protagonist uh, Joel Byram, he is kind of a hapless doofus. <laughs> A certain yep. extent, and, and he finds himself uh, needing to be whisked away. So tell us about this, uh, how teleportation goes from being a freight-only me- medium to a uh, human transport medium, and also talk a little bit about how humans have approached modes of transport in general, because we've always, we ride in a train today and think it's, you know, boringly safe. One of the things that uh, you you learn is doing research for these books is is things that you would never imagine. Oftentimes, reality uh, is stranger than fiction, and I, I know it's a cliche, but it's true. I was researching. I was like, okay, let, let's let's go back in history and find what what scientific minds had to say about different modes of transportation. And I found all this research, uh, you know, from like Cambridge and and. Harvard and you know very respected Princeton, very respected institutions about train travel, and they all said at the inception of, of when freight uh, 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 train travel was just becoming locomotive travel was just becoming uh, popular, and they were warning people don't get on trains because the human body could not withstand moving at more than fifty miles an hour. Your organs will fly out of your orifices. <laughs> Or, or, or uh, another one I read said that if, if you move at fifty miles an hour, the friction of the air against your skin will melt it. <laughs> you know, the human body is just not meant to travel at such speeds. We're not meant to travel. Well, there, there's a certain degree of truth in that. <laughs> <laughs> so this, if you were riding a motorcycle, we, we, yes. Well, that's why in California we wear helmets, right? <laughs> so, uh, but I think, uh, you know, we've always had a, a, a very um, a very cautionary approach to new modes of transport. You know, we always say like, you know, our, our, we have an interesting relationship with technology and technological, technological innovation. But, but at the forefront of that is whenever I'm putting my body. <laughs> exactly. Into, yeah, you put my body into your science. Yeah. Your science better be pretty buttoned down. Right. And so you had these notions of, you know, trains, we, um, you know, the, uh, even airplanes is another great example. Right. I mean, the, you know the the fact that we sit, we allow ourselves to be in pressurized metal tubes, forty thousand feet in the sky, that are, you know, just, I mean, literally, they're they're, it's it's so this it's 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 magic that keeps it up there, you know, and, and um, now with autonomous vehicles, you know, we just trust algorithms to, we're tr- starting to trust algorithms to uh, to drive us around. So what I wanted to do with teleportation again because it's so it's it's so. Um, it's such a violent transportation mechanism in that a- any variation of teleportation that you read about, other than like magical means that don't actually have basis in science, involve vaporizing you in one place and then, you know, recreating you somewhere else. And that's a big 
profound existential anthropological scientific issue um well that's i i think that's one of that's one of the great services of the book up front we watch i've watched star trek 10 bazillion times they get into the uh, trans transporter it goes bing and they go down and right. they everything's fine they come up and everything's fine you point out that there's a part of that process <laughs> that's fairly unpleasant and that, so explain what that where the title of the book comes from so the punch escrow is a mechanism that makes teleportation safe and uh the way it does it is is by essentially creating a backup of the traveler <laughs> Uh, up until the point they're confirmed to have arrived at their location, and then it vaporizes them. <laughs> but that, I mean, that's not how it's marketed. Mm-hmm. And um, so a lot of people have always, you know, people who read the synopsis often think that this is like other things. And the punch escrow is not a reveal. What mm-hmm. I mean by that is that you know, how teleportation works is um, is less of a reveal as as, you know, some of the more nuanced things that happen as a result of that. Um, but we do, you know, the, the fundamental problem that comes with this notion of teleportation is, is what's known as the, the ship of Theseus paradox. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you familiar with that? Uh, well, it's in your book, but explain what that is. It's a really interesting notion. So, so Theseus is, uh, you know, is a Greek hero, um, and he goes to the Isle of Crete and he beats the Minotaur, uh, and he comes back and, um, and, uh, you know, he's a hero. And, and they preserve his ship as, as a memento to his to his greatness. And let's say, you know, 100 years later, somebody comes along and there's this great ship, the great ship of Theseus is like there at the dock. And they say, well, this is this can't be the ship of Theseus. And the Greeks are like, yeah, of course it's the ship of Theseus. It's the ship of Theseus. And he goes, it's docked in salt water. So, you know, don't the, haven't the oars rotted? And they say, yes, but every time an oar rots, we just replace it with a new one. So he's like, is it safe to say that all of the oars from the original ship have now been replaced? And they say, yes. And he's like, well, it's not the ship of Theseus. <laughs> well, and they say, well, that's just your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> so the the question is, it, it's re- this book really comes down to, uh, in a sense, the core of identity of who we are. Uh, and and uh, there's a... And to that end, in your in your most inventive uh, chapter title, and I think perhaps the most inventive chapter title of this year I've encountered so far is Super Calisolipsistic Expialidocious. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you thought so. I had to fight for that one because it's a really long one. They had, to, they had to change the font of the chapter titles to make that one fit in, but yeah. Uh, so so talk about uh, just the, the notion uh, of solipsism and how that informs uh, the the character of Joel and also the character of your uh, the antagonist, so to speak. So I would actually go a little uh, before I get to solipsism. I would actually go a little bit um, further back and then a little bit further forward, and then we we will combine them. So okay. there's a chapter called the Big Mac of Theseus. I love which. <laughs> which uh, is a, is a very pragmatic approach toward to how Joel absorbs and how how society digests the notion of teleportation. So, um, in order to avoid the existential angst associated with "Am I what I am?" first we have to accept 
that there are other simpler things that can be replicated, right? Um, and what I mean by that is if we exist in a society uh, where nothing is ever replicated, then it, then replicating ourselves seems bombastic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it means like, tell, like forget about replicating a pet, replicating whatever. Like, so you have to start very small. You have to say, okay, I've, now we've actually, I don't know if you know, but we've teleported a, a photon mm-hmm. into orbit. <clears throat> yeah, that's it, it's pretty exciting. The science behind this book is pretty exciting. I yeah. mean, they, they, who is it? Yeah, the Chinese just got it up into orbit. The yep. Australians got it a few blocks. Yep. Uh, that was about six months ago. Yeah. This is going great. Teleportation is happening. So, yeah. <laughs> but this is how it does. It, it comes in bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. And so I talk about... Uh, the McDonald's corporations uh, strive to establish um, perfect consistency in the construction of every Big Mac, so, such that how can we the, the perfect environment, the f- perfect worldview for McDonald's is that every Big Mac is exactly perfect, so that you have the same Big Mac dining experience. <laughs> did Did you research that? Was all that true about the the yeah. the, 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 oh, squirt the sauce guns? gun? Yeah, the oh yeah, squirt, squirt gun. So this is they they've really got that calibrated as tightly as they can now. Oh yeah, no, it, McDonald's wants you to have uh, the same McDonald's experience everywhere in the world. That is, if you get a bit, especially Big Mac being like their trademark item, food item, it behooves McDonald's to say that whenever you step into a McDonald's. There's an experience. Now you and I may not savor that experience, but <laughs> but let's say you know to uh, you know to somebody who's just craving a Big Mac, you can get one anywhere. And the most important to the per- to that person craving a Big Mac is that it tastes like the Big Mac they remember, because for some reason we humans are sentimental creatures and we, uh, y- you know, things that feel like home are even if they're arbitrary, sometimes are. Uh, bring us a lot of comfort, you know, and mm-hmm. um, and that that's what McDonald's relies on is that you know that when you step into a McDonald's, the fries will taste the same, the burger will taste the same. It's something that you can count on in this wild and crazy world. <laughs> so, so this consistency is big, and so you start with this notion of a Big Mac and 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 how we the evolution of the Big Mac into the into the point where now you could get a teleported Big Mac into your little printer at home, and and you can be sure that it's the right Big Mac delivered by the McDonald's Corporation, signed, authenticated by the McDonald's Corporation. It's the thing that you have. Now, um, you know, there's, uh, now we, we we think about this notion of, okay, how does that apply to human beings or organisms, right? Well, that's a little more complicated, but one of the cool things about the, the McDonald's Big Mac process is that, sure, you say, okay, let's say McDonald's has figured this out. Now I could just take that Big Mac and replicate that. So how does McDonald's solve for the, the both the Big Mac being perfect but also being unique? Mm-hmm. And that is where we, we start to establish this notion that everything in, the, everything in the future has some sort of encoding mechanism. That is, uh, the easiest way to think about that today is um, the difference between uh, fake diamonds and real diamonds. The only real, like a mine diamond, the only thing that makes it special is that De Beers IGA will give it a, will give it a unique code. That somebody can look up that says this came from a mine, mm-hmm. like the one the, the synthesized diamonds just don't get the code, right? So they don't. They're worth less. So so this is a, the equivalent. So you got your idea of comms right. <laughs> out of the. That's fascinating. Which so. is like, how do we establish that something is authentic mm-hmm. in a world where replication exists? 
right? Well, you have to code it. You right. have to sign it. Uh, it's a digital signature. So this this book also, and I, and I was it was fascinating to think about that. It takes a lot of our current internet technology and rebuilds it out in a sense in the physical world. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything is interconnected. We uh, the comms, as you say, are essentially implants mm-hmm. that we have that allow us to to exist in a world of augmented reality. They they solve a lot of problems because we don't have to worry about our phones. We don't have to worry about glasses. We don't have to worry about uh, internet connectivity. It's just it's it's basically an organ. Mm-hmm. The comms is like an organ uh, that's syn- synthetic. And um, one of the nice things about it is it also establishes your identity. So there's no way to do identity to have identity theft in the future since your identity is encoded into yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's now the, that's where the and that's where you sort of create the the notion of, of um, how do humans accept teleportation? Well, if you believe in all the things we just said, if you believe that there's uh, a way to successfully replicate things consistently, and if you believe that there's a way to ensure that whatever is teleported is the original, then in your mind, the the sort of suspension of disbelief. Uh, if if you go to that world, you no longer have to worry about suspension of disbelief because these things exist. Mm-hmm. So in a world where I can teleport something successfully, and I know that the thing that teleported is the is the original item because it encode, it's encoded correctly and it very it checks out, and we start with things and then we start to migrate to organisms, and I can teleport a dog and I can teleport a horse, whatever you know what I mean. So at some point you're going to say, well, all these things that are happening. Are you know? I'm comfortable that the thing that came out of the teleporter is the original. So, so therefore, I must be the original <laughs> <laughs> if I come out the other side. Well, that's a, a. It's so interesting because, of course, there are the repercussions of that kind of existential technology uh, ripple out, of course, into society where you have created uh, the Gehinnomites. Right. So where does the word Gehinnomen come from, and <laughs> where do they come from? Um, originally, when I wrote them, I, I always wanted to have... I, I love Luddites. <laughs> uh, especially, especially given our current political climate. Well, they've got... Uh, they have a, a bad rap to a certain extent. They were less against the technology than they were against the economic impact of right. that said technology. And um, and I think that the Gehenomites are not anti-technology. That's, mm-hmm. you know, I... And you make that clear. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just anti-teleportation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, their issue is that despite all the marketing and benefits of, of teleportation, you know, they're like the guys who are saying, wake up, everyone, you're still dying and then being printed out somewhere. And everyone's like, yeah, but you know, it's fine. I, I come. It doesn't matter because as long as I come out the other side, I'm me. I feel right? like me. <laughs> yeah, I feel like me. I'm not the first person to have teleported, and and you know, my comms check out. All my memories are intact. So I, you know, I, I think that the existential angst of teleportee number one is very, very different than teleportee number one million. Mm-hmm. Oh, obviously. Because yeah. at that point, you're just, it's just an accepted norm in society. And I think I, if I watch a lot of. Um, Ars Technica did a review of the book, and there's mm-hmm. like 50 pages of of arguments over, you know, th- I would never step into a teleporter. Like, yeah, I don't think any of us would be the first person to step into a teleporter. I believe almost all of us would be person number one million who stepped into a teleporter. And, and uh, you know, and 
you could deny it as much as you want, but if you if you accept the a lot of the work that I'd done in the book was was explaining how society anthropologically slowly accepted teleportation as a means of, of transportation. The Ganymites are just refuse to accept it. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are they're you know they're the ones who are saying nope, <laughs> <laughs> actually not so much. And by the way, it's murder. <laughs> and um, and I took a lot of their perspectives. Um, you know, it's a combination of, of the Luddites. Uh, you know, combination of, of people, the sort of the pro-life people, mm-hmm. uh, and then the, the anti-euthanasia people. Uh, you know what I mean? That's, that's kind right. of like, I've t- I, I, I cherry-picked kind of the, the arguments from those three camps. Well, you do a good job of uh, working that into the character. There's a really, uh, I think, a kind of remarkably emotionally powerful scene with Sylvia that I think... Uh, speaks to the the sources of that, but also the power of science fiction to really, really unsettle you and make you look at something and say, wow, that's... When you put it that way, it's creepy. And it's very... Uh, it's a very important scene because uh, selfishly, um, it's a scene that um, passes the Bechdel test in the book. Uh, and I really wanted to have one. I really wanted to have. I wanted. I mean, it's tough when you're writing a book about a guy. It's very tough to have scenes that, that pass the Bechdel test. But in this particular scene, yeah, with the one, I think I think you were talking about the one between Danielle and and Sylvia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, there's a moment where these two women are talking about, you know, the power to essentially create life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and 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 Danielle, uh, you know, just lost somebody very close to her, and, and Sylvia thought she lost somebody very close to her you know and and uh and they're having this debate and it's it's between two women and it's about the power of creating life well you know one of the things that i think is interesting is that you do a good job of taking the what we think of as a well understood piece of technology which is to say trans teleportation and tweezing it and to and just, you just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it until uh, you get to something called the honeycomb, which makes perfect sense in terms of what teleportation is as you describe it. Right. But uh, is also a fairly terrifying and not not at all what anybody who steps in who watches a Star Trek teleporter and say, God, I want to commute one of those. <laughs> Well, yeah, because you have this notion of, of the punch escrow being this ephemeral cash that mm-hmm. only exists. Its, its entire purpose is to ensure safe, safe teleportation. And what we know about technology is is that as soon as you create something, you know, somebody <laughs> Any else cash can be stored for longer than intended. The, you know, an ephemeral cash is as people who uh, you know we we constantly hear about sort of criminals who uh, whose computers get confiscated and and things that they thought were deleted weren't <laughs> right uh-huh. i mean this comes from this comes from modern times we we oftentimes you know uh the lure of snapchat you remember that when, when snapchat initially came out the lure of it was you can send naked pictures and they'll they'll be deleted forever right i mean that was the, the lure of it <laughs> yeah. um or the any messages you send were like ephemeral let's say but let's let's be real here about like why it was special so but you know, very quickly, people were like, "Well, you know what? You could send Snapchat me to delete the pictures, but when I receive the picture, my phone can grab a picture of the ephemeral picture, and now that thing that I thought was ephemeral 
is now permanent, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, so absolutely. this notion of trusting the technology mm-hmm. versus you know exploiting other technologies that can take advantage of you know loopholes in the technology that we trust to you know for for personal gain. <laughs> Technology is based on science, and there's a lot of hard science in this book, particularly physics and quantum physics. It, it's kind of like you know a, a, a brief history of, of quantum physics <laughs> as told from the 22nd century, which is a, a lot of fun given the, the basis of the book. I can see where that stuff comes from. So talk about uh, creating that and also getting – you have a conversation uh, with your friend who's a yes. physicist at the end. So talk about getting – Coming up with that stuff yourself, vetting it, and that kind of back and forth that you went through with the scientists, it's an interesting part of your creative process. My, my favorite story about that is actually to go back to the beginning of our interview when you were talking about 25th century versus 22nd century. Like, why do we move it back? So mm-hmm. we ran into a lot of problems with the beta readers in that the, the, the book felt too near future to imagine it that far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when I was talking with Joe and, and the other scientists I was working on, they said, look... To really get teleportation working the way you envisage it, we need about 400 years of development. Mm-hmm. And I came back to them and I said, look, guys, nobody's buying it. <laughs> Our beta readers are not, they're not buying it. They're having, they're having hard to- a hard time with suspension of disbelief that the world is that familiar 400 years from now. Mm-hmm. And I said, we got to bring it up. And it's amazing. There's a panel of about five scientists that I worked with. Mm-hmm. How did you meet them? I mean, how did you get this get this going i have uh, most of them are, are friends from high school <laughs> okay <laughs> which is why you should always make friends with the geeks in high school because you never know when you're going to need to write a novel <laughs> and uh you'll need a hard science uh, console you know i had uh you know anthropologists uh uh scientists I, um in uh, college a co- college friend of mine is a, uh she's an engineer at oxytech which is the company that actually is do- work using CRISPR to modify mosquitoes today <laughs> to fight zika and and uh uh, malaria. Wow. So, so she's the one who, who helped you dream up the peeing mosquitoes. She helped me figure out how to use CRISPR to modify the mosquitoes, uh, and then the quantum physicist helped me figure out how to turn them into living machines. <laughs> you know? Wow. Uh, and and so uh, it was. Re- I learned so much through the process that you know, I, it was kind of a guilty pleasure for me because I would always, you know, I was. It was really fun because one of the things I thought about is like, hey, you know, it's the future. Uh, maybe I should have laser weapons. And the first thing my physicist said was like, you're never going to have laser weapons. They're very inefficient. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ever going to want laser weapons. They don't, they're not very useful. Uh-huh. I said, why not? And he said, well, because one of the cool things about, cool, one of the useful things about bullets is that they they uh, they correspond to gravity, meaning when you shoot a bullet, there's a relationship between the bullet and the, and the uh, gravitational pull of the earth and the curvature of the earth and all that kind of stuff, whereas the laser just goes straight. So, <laughs> I never thought about that. Sure, yeah, you shoot a laser, it's just going... It's a, it's a, so if, it, if something is not in view, a laser can't shoot it. Mm. Whereas uh, um, you know, bullets can account for the curvature of the Earth, meaning you can shoot some things that are almost you know, basically out of sight or out of the horizon. Um, and it, it, very interesting stuff, right? I mean, because right. lasers just go into space. Like, basically, you just shoot them and they go straight. Uh-huh. And um, so... And they also there's you know, diffu- laser diffusion. And all. Long story short, it's really cool to say like to have this conversation. Like I'm gonna, ha- I need a weapon for my book, and they're like, yeah, use a shotgun. <laughs> I'm like, why? They're like, because it's very efficient. <laughs> 
I guess so. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're still reading paper books, and that's right. a technology that's 400 years old. Exactly. I, you know, it's, you mentioned the footnotes. It's really interesting you said, you said that. So, like, I love the footnotes. That, I, I like reading books that have footnotes. It's thank a lot you. Of fun. I, I actually just wrote an article. My, my, my publisher wasn't so sure about it. I actually wrote an article for Writer's Digest about footnotes in general, you know, because, uh, I think the worst offender of of footnotes is uh, 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 David David Foster uh, Wallace. Wallace. Yes, and I think he had a um, an entire chapter that was a footnote. <laughs> but um, uh, in Infinite Jest, he had a whole chapter. It was mm-hmm. just a footnote. And um, but anyway, the, the footnotes in the medium. You know, we talked about the book, and 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 in a book, footnotes feel very natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in an ebook, right. They don't, and so you have to, we have to think about when we were building the eBooks, mm-hmm. how do we present footnotes because mm-hmm. they had to be presented differently. So we end up compromising on this notion where like there'll be a footnote and you can push on it, it gives you a pop up window, which to me is a lot less satisfactory than the footnote at the end of the page. <laughs> um, yeah, there's something about the about uh, tweezing the the margins at the bottom of the page right. and that kind of look it just it sets you you go oh wow. There's, it's like there's a fun nugget ahead. Yeah, and I think you know there's just um, one of the review, one of the people who read the, the book, and and uh, she mentioned she said I've treated your footnotes as a choose your own adventure, because sometimes <laughs> you know I just don't care about the science of it, like I you know, but there's sometimes where I'm like really curious about you know how is it that X Y and Z happen, and I want to go down the rabbit hole, and mm-hmm. having access to that piece of the world is nice to have. Uh, the audiobook, for example, doesn't have the footnotes. Oh, really? Right? Because there's no real, there's no, yeah, no easy way to do no it. No easy way to do it. Um, but you don't need the footnotes in order to experience the story. Mm-hmm. The footnotes uh, exist as a as a mechanism for augmenting the world in order to to make it feel more lived in. So it's an augmented reality book. Right. It is. Yeah. <laughs> the footnotes are an augmented reality tool. And if you think about the, the some of the people who use footnotes, you know. Uh, like you know, Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams, the masters you know, of, mm-hmm. of kind of like using footnotes as a way of not just conveying information, but to provide deeper insight into the narrative. You know, that's th- those are the people who influenced me. Uh, now, clearly, one of the influences, especially from your reading, is uh, Mr. Asimov, and you have so much fun with this idea of salting. Yeah. It's, it's our big theme in the book, so yeah. explain what salting is, what Joel does for a living. Uh, that's a job that I can maybe handle someday. I think you'd be very good line. at salting. <laughs> I, so one of the things that I wanted to do in, in the, the book is also create a future that is not dystopian. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the concerns you hear now uh, are people worried about what's going to happen to jobs uh, as artificial intelligence, robotics, and automation starts to become commoditized and, and mainstream. And so I wanted to give a perspective into how what jobs are like in the future. And artificial intelligence is, uh, you know, we, we, one of the things about artificial intelligence is that it never ends. That mm-hmm. is, when we when we give computers the, the pursuit of knowledge, it's unbounded. Right. Um, now, today what we do is we, we're very we're very specific so like let's say google teaches a certain ai to play, to play go when it beats all the humans <laughs> then it's completed its mission and then there it doesn't there's no further pursuits mm-hmm. but in the in the future like where you've got like let's say this room and instead of having uh somebody in the control room we could say hey room 
Alexa, mm-hmm. <laughs> Alexa, turn the volume up on Tal's mic. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, <laughs> I'm, I've got I've got my All back right. to the control room. I don't know. I don't know what kind of laser laser eyes I'm getting right now, but. <laughs> Um, but imagine this this world in which the, the room, the furniture is constantly adjusting mm-hmm. to your needs. That my, my chair is naturally ergonomic because it could tell my body temperature, it could tell my my posture, my weight, <laughs> my feelings. Um, and so, in that world, uh, technology constantly see, uh, seeks to augment itself because that is a competitive differentiation for itself. Mm-hmm. And. So salting is the the job in which uh, apps pay humans to enrich them, so that they can be more useful. <laughs> so so not we've gone from making money by inventing apps to making money by helping apps. <laughs> so apps themselves get paid for being mm-hmm. used. Some of that goes obviously to the developers of the apps, but some sure. of the apps get to keep some of the money. Uh huh. And because. The developers recognize that there's a point in time in which the app is a better judge of what it needs in order to improve than the developer. And at that point, the app can can have a, an exchange of commerce. Number one is the people who use the app pay it, so mm-hmm. it gets to keep some of the profits. It can use some of the profits to make itself better and you know through through enrichment through humans, which is salting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and as a result, gives itself a competitive differentiation so that more people will want to use it. So your character Joel, as you put it, at one point gets paid to tell jokes to computers, non sequiturs, yeah, yeah, and con them. Yeah, basically, the problem with uh, anytime you have artificial intelligence, it's limited by design. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, uh, it, you could teach a, you could teach an application to be unbounded in its pursuit of knowledge, but you can't teach it how how to be unbounded. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one of the things that artificial intelligence will always struggle with is the inception of original ideas. It needs inputs, mm-hmm. and a developer can only provide inputs that are that come from either the developer or other sources of information. So there's value to an app in interacting with a real human being because it introduces a real source of chaos. <laughs> so things like double entendres are really useful mm-hmm. because a computer can understand that ah, you know, when I say about you know let's uh, you know let let's get the ball rolling. It's a metaphor that talks about rolling a ball down the hill because I want to move things forward. <laughs> I don't actually want to roll a ball. <laughs> you know what I mean? All these kind of things. And, mm-hmm. that, and then it can start to use that and make itself be more useful to the people who interact with it. Well, it's a, a really fascinating idea. And I think, too, that it speaks to uh, this really great – this book hits a real sweet spot that science fiction does uh, of talking about – um, you keep both hard science and soft humanity in your in your eyesight at all times. So talk about the character arcs in this book and the absolutely butt kicking page turning plot. So the, uh, the the especially thing that came from a textbook. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Textbooks t- traditionally are not not thrilling. Um, so let's start with the humanity. And I think that uh, at the end of the day, this is a book about a man's relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in in getting duplicated, uh, he's he's subject to being jealous of himself. And, and gets a good viewpoint on who he is by seeing himself from out the outside. Maybe not outside. liking some of those parts of himself. 
And in many ways, because neither version of Joel is sure of who they are, because they can't trust the mechanisms that previously they assumed would tell them who they are. Like when we look in the mirror, we know who we are today because we know what we look like. Uh, even if we wear a mask, we know that beneath the mask, it's us. Even when we wish we're somebody else, you know, yeah. at the end of the day, we there's an immense comfort and uh, gravity and uh, knowing that at our core, we know who we are. We see Joel get it, wake up in a world where neither version of him is sure of who he is. And the only route that he has uh, that he can trust is the love of his wife. But he can't force his wife to love either version of him, you know. And mm -hmm. and and so, it's a weird sort of comp competitive notion because, really, at the end of the day, whoever Joel's wife loves, to Joel, means that that's who he is. And so, it doesn't matter who the world thinks Joel is. Joel defines himself through the love of his wife, and that's sort of like what where we sort of get into, how do we transcend technology? Because even with all the technology, this assures one of the Joels, yes, you are who you are, you know, he, he knows at the core he can't be that person if that is not the person that his wife loves. Well, that's, a, uh, I think, a really interesting insight and speaks to the power of this book to show that our humanity is, how our humanity is informed by our technology. As our technology gets higher, uh, it's a hopeful book. Our yeah. understanding of ourselves will also increase. I think so. Then you know, the cool thing about then now now knowing that that it's based on this love, it's really cool to then take the wife away, because <laughs> 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 because now you know uh, Joel's are are less because then you what you create is less of a damsel in distress scenario. Mm -hmm. And Joel is the one that's in distress. That's because, what I, yeah, he's because, kind of inept through this whole thing in terms of like the rescue aspect. The rescue aspect is because, you know, more than anything else, I mean, obviously he wants to rescue his wife, but the, the, the drive to rescue his wife is, is really that without his wife, he has no idea who he is, you know? And, and so uh, it's, it's grounded in that, you know, love is powerful, uh, human ingenuity is powerful, and, and as you know, with all these concerns we have about existentialism, one of the things we, we can rely on is that uh, love is a uniquely human quality that transcends technology. The new book by Tal M. Klein is The Punch Escrow. Thank you for joining me, Tal. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.